And turn with me to our sermon text, Matthew 17, verses 22 and following. the Word of God. It contains no errors in the original language in which it was written, Greek, uh, because it was written by God, ultimately, uh, though through uh, the Apostle Matthew. And uh, we have the assurance in faithful translations of the original language that this remains to us the authoritative Word uh, of God himself. So listen reverently as I read to you, starting in verse 22 of Matthew 17. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And upon his saying, from strangers... Jesus said to him, Consequently, the sons are exempt. But, lest we give them offense, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a stator. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to know your mind better by our delving into this passage in Matthew's Gospel. Would you please reveal to us further your thoughts that we might think them after you. Would you please honor yourself in the preaching and grant me unction as I preach. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, do you know what a tax is? Do you know what taxes are? You've probably heard the term. Um, If you don't know the term, I'll try to explain it briefly. A tax is usually something that the government uh, requires us to pay on a regular basis. Uh, It can either require us to pay it when we buy something, when you buy something at the store, your parents buy something at the store, there is always a tax on what your parents are uh, buying. Uh, And when they pay the money to the cashier, uh, they are paying, part of that money is uh, to pay a tax that the state of Texas actually puts on 
on uh, the good that's being bought by your mom or your dad. Um, there are other uh, governing authorities like the national, the federal government, the the uh, uh, the USA government, if I can put it that way, uh, that places tax on us. And there are also local taxes that your local county or city, the local county or city that we live in, puts on. Uh, on products as well. But taxes are things that are we are obliged to pay. Now, a lot of us don't like that fact, don't like to pay taxes. I don't know anybody that likes to pay taxes, actually. But at any rate, um, we are required to pay them. We are obliged is the fancy word for being required to pay uh, taxes. Um but taxes are uh, something that have been around for a long, long time. And the fact is that Jesus was obliged, well, appeared to be obliged to pay uh, taxes. Actually, he was obliged to pay certain taxes, and he appeared to be obliged to pay other taxes as well. I'm going to explain what I mean by that here in just a minute. But this passage... It looks on the surface like it's about a tax that Jesus was being asked to pay or thought people thought he ought to pay. But the truth is, this passage is not really about money. It is about money on the surface. But it's actually about paying a much greater price that Jesus was soon going to pay uh, soon after this event took place that's described here in Matthew 17. And that's the second point of the sermon. So you need to listen uh, because it's very important because it applies to you and to me, to all of us, not just the adults here. The uh, tax that I just was alluding to when I was speaking with the children and the tax of which this passage that we're looking at speaks is not the same one that Jesus referred to when he told his enemies, the scribes, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, I believe, on that occasion, um, it's not the tax that he was referring to when he spoke to those enemies of his and told them to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That tax that Jesus was referring to on that occasion when he uh, said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, that tax was the tax that the Roman authorities imposed upon their subjects, including their Jewish subjects. The tax that is referred to here in Matthew 17 was the ransom or redemption price which every male Israelite, 20 years and over, was commanded by God in Exodus chapter 30 to pay as a ransom or redemption for his life. That's actually an exact quote. I'll read it. In the In fact, we'll turn and read the passage right now briefly. Uh, turn with me to Exodus 30 in your Bibles. Because this is the passage that lies behind uh, this um, uh, what's going on in this text, and therefore it's important that we understand it and read it. So, this is Exodus 30, starting in verse 11, I'll read through verse 16. Uh, but this is the tax that uh, is being spoken of here in Matthew 17. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel, to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself, or a ransom, uh, several uh, translations translate that, for his life, or for his soul. Um, uh, that 
when, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give, notice the command language there, a ransom for himself or for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what every one of this is what everyone who is numbered shall give. A half, excuse me, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Notice, to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Notice, as ver- uh, verse 16 there, as verse 16 points out, this money was to be used for the upkeep of the tent of meeting, meeting back in Moses' day. And later on, once the temple in Jerusalem was built, that money was used for the upkeep of the temple. And it was this ransom or redemption price for the Israelites' life, which was to uh, make atonement, ceremonially speaking, for him and those whom he represented as well in his household. Now, nothing in this Exodus passage says that the tax, we're going to call it the temple tax, had to be paid annually. Nothing in the passage says that. But over the centuries, this became the custom among the Jewish people to pay this tax annually, once a year. As we read in verse 13 of Exodus 30, this tax was half a shekel, which in Jesus' day was equivalent to two Greek drachmas, or uh, to the uh, Tyrian shekel, from the city of Tyre. Don't worry about that. Anyway, think of it as the two drachma, uh, Greek drachma tax, or the half shekel tax. Now, there was a bit of a problem because there was no half shekel coin circulating in uh, the first, in first, first century Palestine. But the requirement was a half a shekel. But there was no half shekel coin. So what was common in Jesus' day was for two Jewish men to go in together on paying the tax, and to pay the tax with a single shekel coin, which was also known as a stator, as it's described in verse 27 of our passage. And so Peter, Jesus and Peter, go and give a stator, which is half, which is two half shekels, which means equal to a shekel, um, that is what they are required to give, and that is what uh, miraculously Jesus does uh, give uh, on behalf of himself and Peter. So that's the background. 
uh, to this text. So, what are the points of the sermon? Well, they are these. As the divine king's son, Jesus was exempt from having to pay the price to which the temple tax alluded. He was exempt. But as the messianic son, Jesus absolutely would and did pay the price to which the temple tax alluded. So first, as the divine son, as the divine king's son, I should say, Jesus was exempt from having to pay the price to which the temple tax alluded. A little background here on what's going on. Jesus and Peter uh, uh, have not paid their temple tax yet. Uh, the temple tax that the uh, the collectors thought they believed they were required to pay. Perhaps uh, that was because Peter and uh, Jesus were out of uh, out of town. They were not in Capernaum. Uh, they had been elsewhere prior to this point in time, uh, and that perhaps the uh, collectors had come around and uh, were looking for Peter and Jesus, and there was no Peter and Jesus to be found. So the collectors, once they return to Capernaum, approach Peter it appears perhaps on the street, um, with this question that they ask him that's found in our text. And that is, um, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Because he hadn't paid it yet. And they uh, were aware of that. And so they ask Peter, not in Jesus' presence, Jesus is not there when they approach him. Perhaps they did Perhaps they did that intentionally so as to avoid embarrassing Jesus, possibly, we don't know. But the point is, they approach Peter with the question about Jesus. And uh, Peter, um, in typical fashion, blurts out his answer, yes, meaning yes, Jesus does pay uh, the temple tax, or will pay the temple tax tax, the two drachma tax. Well, following that brief conversation with the collectors of that tax, Peter then proceeds to the house in which Jesus is in Capernaum. He goes to that house following that conversation, and it's there in that house where Peter gets, how should we say, straightened out uh, by the Lord on the matter of who does and who does not need to pay the redemption tax um, required by the Lord in Exodus 30. Now, in order for Peter to grasp the point that Jesus wants to teach him on this particular occasion, Peter first has to be reminded of some truths that he already knew. And Jesus does this by asking him this question. Which is, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? Now, upon hearing Jesus' question to him, Peter would have easily understood, and quickly probably uh, and easily understood, that the king whom Jesus was ultimately referring to in this in this um, hypothetical uh, situation, was God, as the kings in, in, in Jesus' parables and other other uh, 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 teaching matter that Jesus uh, subjects that Jesus taught on. Very oftentimes, almost always, the king that in the analogy that Jesus would provide was God, 
as it is here. And Peter would have picked that up very quickly and understood specifically that Jesus was referring to God the Father when he was speaking of the king or the kings of the earth, that he had one king in particular in mind, and that was God. Uh, God the Father, by the way, is referred to uh, specifically as a king, actually the king of kings and lord of lords in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 6, verse 15, as well as elsewhere, also uh, in 1 Timothy 1, 17, uh, and some other places, including, by the way, the passage that we read uh, in uh, as our call to worship in Psalm 95. I guess you could make the argument that that's the triune God referred to as king there, but um, you, could even, you could also make the point that it's the first person of the Godhead in particular that's referenced. But clearly, that's the case in uh, 1 Timothy chapters. I'll read, I'll read that real quickly to you. He says there, um, starting in verse 13, Paul speaking, of course, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus. So God there was God the Father, as distinguished from Jesus. Um, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed, and there it's a reference to the Father, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen, and there's how you know it's not Jesus, who no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's a clear reference to the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Uh, and again, there are others uh, found. So there's, uh, while Jesus is more often referred to as the King uh, in the New Testament, uh, the Father is also. Um, and so, Paul... Uh, Peter, rather, would have understood the reference to the uh, God, the Father, as king. But also upon hearing this question, Peter would have quickly recognized something else, and that was that the royal son to whom he was ultimately referring was Jesus. Now, Peter had already come to understand that Jesus was the Son of God the Father, um, as evidenced by his recent great confession, remember? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, he understood Jesus was God, but he also understood he was distinct from the living God that he referred to there in that great confession, which was a reference to the first person of the Godhead. And so Peter had grasped that concept as well, that uh, Jesus was the divine Son of the divine King, the first person of the Godhead. But Peter also would have picked something else up, which he needed to pick up from uh, Jesus posing this question. And that was a third truth, um, that namely that the temple, the Jerusalem temple, was Jesus' father's house. It was the king's house. It was the earthly residence of the king of kings. The first person of the Trinity. And Jesus reminds Peter with his question of all three of these truths. And Peter needed to understand those truths and have them in his mind in order for him to grasp the new truth that Jesus wished to teach him on this occasion. And that truth was that as the divine king's son, Jesus himself was exempt from having to pay 
the ransom or redemption price required of men by God in Exodus 30, particularly of his, amongst his covenant people in Exodus 30 that I read to you earlier. That redemption price, that ransom for his life, was an obligation which by Jesus' day had come to be known as the two drachma temple tax. Because of the payment required, two drachma, and because of the uh, that which the money was used for, namely the upkeep of the temple. But this temple tax, this two drachma tax, this ransom price, was an obligation from which Jesus himself was exempt. As he himself implies uh, uh, in verse 26, when he says... Sorry, I didn't put my bookmarks in the right place today. When he says, upon saying from strangers, in other words, from their sons or from strangers, who do do the kings of the earth collect uh, taxes from, upon upon his saying from strangers, Jesus said to him, to Peter, consequently, the sons are exempt. And he was thinking first and foremost about himself, but also, by the way, about Peter, because of Peter's spiritual union with him, which was by faith, that he too was ultimately exempt from paying the redemption price. I might say more about that later here in a minute. But anyway, Jesus himself in particular was exempt from this tax because, why? Because, as I've already indicated, he was the divine son of the divine king. And a king's son is always exempt from paying taxes in the king's kingdom. It's the strangers who get taxed. It's the subjects of the king that get taxed. It's not his family members that get taxed, in particular not his uh, sons. And Jesus was the son of the divine king, of the great king of kings. And therefore he was exempt from paying this tax that otherwise men had to pay. Because he was the divine son. And he performs, actually, this is a little bit of an aside, but it's an important aside. He performs two miracles on this occasion. I don't know if you noticed that there are two. But he performs two miracles on this occasion, I think, to remind Peter of his divinity, of his divine sonship. The fact that he is the divine son of the living God. The first miracle is a more subtle one. And that is... Jesus knew of the conversation that Peter had had with the collectors of the temple tax when Jesus was not around. He knew of that conversation as evidenced by the fact that Jesus launched into a conversation about that very subject immediately following Peter's return or Peter's arrival at the house before Peter could say a word, Jesus starts talking about that temple tax. In verse 25, uh, after he says, after Peter said, yes, we read, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, to Peter first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? Jesus knew about the conversation. Why? Because he was God, is God. And Peter would have probably gone, interesting. The Lord knew what I the conversation I had a little while ago with those collectors of the temple tax. 
That was the first miracle Jesus performed on this occasion, as a reminder of who he was. And the second was the more obvious one, and that is Jesus voluntarily paid both his and Peter's alleged obligation, I'll call it that, with a coin that Peter would find in the mouth of of the first fish that he would catch on a hook that he would soon throw into the Sea of Galilee and pull out of the water. And that coin was going to be in the mouth of that fish, and the coin that Peter was going to find there would exactly cover the alleged obligation that both he, Jesus, and Peter owed. One stater, which was one shekel. Oops, one stater, which was one shekel. Two miracles. Kind of offhanded almost. And yet reminders that yes, Jesus was the Son of the living God. Because, and was therefore God himself. But it wasn't just this financial debt, this financial obligation from which Jesus, as the divine son of the divine king, was exempt. Yes, he was certainly exempt from the temple tax, from the ransom or redemption price required for one's life. But he was also exempt from having to pay not just the financial obligation, but the spiritual debt to which the financial debt alluded and pointed. The financial obligation uh, set forth in Exodus 30 that we read earlier. That financial debt, that obligation to pay what was called the ransom for one's life, or one's self, or one's soul, that financial debt alluded to a much greater debt, indeed an infinite debt, that every uh, person, save Jesus, owed. And that is the debt to God's justice, that all those conceived and born in sin owe to God and his justice on account of their sin and their rebellion against God. That's all of us. We all uh, begin life owing that debt. And the debt gets, uh, well, you can't add to infinity. It's an infinite debt. But Jesus was exempt from having to pay that debt. Why? Obviously, because unlike us, Jesus was not, was not conceived with the guilt of Adam's first sin, accredited to him. And unlike us, Jesus never sinned a day in his life. Which means he never offended God and his justice. And because he had not offended God and his justice, God the Father, he was not indebted to God's justice and wasn't in need of being redeemed or ransomed spiritually. Peter was. Jesus wasn't. And yet, Peter wasn't either, this text indicates. Because he was united to Jesus by faith. Now, even though he was still, in some sense, obliged to pay the temple tax because the ceremonial elements of the Old Testament law hadn't yet been done away with because Jesus hadn't died and risen yet, so there was a sense in which he still did owe this tax, But he didn't owe what this tax stood for, which was the redemption of his soul. Because 
His soul has already been redeemed, you see, by Christ. Even though Christ hadn't yet in time and space endured the wrath of God in Simon's place, yet God viewed Simon in, as in Christ before the historical atonement occurred. And therefore he was redeemed. And he didn't owe the redemption price. Okay, so as the divine king's son, Jesus was exempt from having to pay the price, that spiritual price, to which the temple tax alluded. But secondly, as the messianic son, Jesus absolutely would and did pay the price, the spiritual price to which the temple tax alluded. He was the messianic son, as the description of him as the son of man in verse 22 indicates. Look back at verse 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Son of man was the name that the prophet Daniel gave to the messianic figure. Who, would, who he saw in the vision that God gave him. Mes, uh, son of man going up to the Ancient of Days, you recall, recorded in Daniel chapter 7. And so that uh, title, Son of Man, had become was known to every Jew as the Messianic title. It's the title of Messiah. And so the connection between verses 22 and 3 and what follows, I think, is that. It took me a while to figure this out. I was trying to figure out why Matthew stuck those two verses in there between verses 14 through 21 or 20 and verses 24 and following and I f- figured it out. That's what's going on. That's the reminder that Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to pay, he's going to pay the price, the redemption price on behalf of others by his death and then resurrection. And Jesus was the messianic son whom God had anointed. That's what Mashiach means, is to uh, to anoint, or the anointed one, uh, whom God the Father anointed to fulfill this task of redeeming a people for himself, specifically those among the fallen mass of humanity whom the Father wished to rescue from his own judicial wrath. And he appointed the Son, the second person of the Godhead, to be that Redeemer. And as the Redeemer of God's elect, Jesus absolutely would, even though he was not required to uh, pay that, if you will, redemption price, he absolutely would and did pay the spiritual price to which the temple tax alluded, as indicated by that statement that I just read uh, in verses 22 and 23. That was a fait accompli. He said, the Son of Man is going to. It's going to happen. And it did, as we all know, happen. And Jesus would be paying and did pay that ransom price, that redemption price, on behalf of all whom the Father willed to save. God does not will to save everyone. Jesus only dies for those whom God uh, wills that he should die for and therefore save. But the fact that God is willing to do that and that Jesus uh, offering up of himself to God as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, uh, 
the evidence that God intended to do that on behalf of uh, sinners whom he wished to save is evident from God, um, Jesus, rather, Jesus' voluntary payment of the temple tax, which was the redemption price, um, which Peter owed. Remember, he didn't just pay for his own alleged obligation, which wasn't a real obligation, but he was also paying for Peter's genuine obligation. Because remember, the financial debt pointed to, alluded to a uh, spiritual indebtedness that every Jewish man owed to God's justice on account of his sin, including Peter. And this is the spiritual debt that Peter did, in fact, owe as a sinner. But it was a debt that Jesus himself was willing to pay. And, of course, did pay. And that, the evidence of that, of Jesus' willingness and of uh, what would in fact happen, is evidenced on this particular occasion by Jesus' voluntary payment of the financial debt, the financial debt that God was requiring of Peter in Exodus 30, which alluded to the spiritual debt that Peter owed as well. And Jesus' willingness to pay not just the financial debt, but the spiritual debt to spiritually ransom and redeem Peter signaled his willingness to pay the spiritual, excuse me, his willingness to pay Peter's financial debt signaled his willingness to pay the spiritual debt of all those who, like Peter, God wished to make objects of his mercy and grace rather than of his justice. So, let me ask you this. Does that include you? Does that include you? Are you one for whom Christ died? Christ didn't die for everybody in the world, otherwise everybody in the world would be saved. Everybody in the world would go to heaven. We know that's not true. Jesus died to save sinners. And he did, in fact, save sinners by his atoning sacrifice. And he has saved those whom the Father willed that he should save. Are you one of those people? The way you answer that question is you don't panic, going, I'm not sure. The way you answer that question, you can know that you are one of God's chosen ones whom God has chosen to be merciful to. And this is the only way you can know it, is, uh, is if you flee to Jesus Christ in faith trusting in him alone to reconcile you to God and make you right with God and forgive you. If you believe on the Lord Jesus, not on Jesus plus something like your baptism or church membership or or civic righteousness, but if you're trusting in Jesus alone, who was 100% God and 100% man, and trusting in him to be your Savior and Lord, because you will do both if you're genuinely trusting in him, um, then you can know that you are one of those for whom Christ died. Are you one of those for whom Christ died? In other words, are you trusting in Jesus alone to save you right now? If you aren't, flee to Christ. Don't look to your baptism. It's a, bless- it's a blessing for Christians, but it's not a way of being saved. Don't look to your regular church attendance. Don't look to your faithfulness to your spouse. 
your honesty, your integrity. Don't look to any of those things. They won't catch you into heaven. And if you add them to Jesus, you don't have Jesus. Flee to Christ alone. In conclusion, there's a consequence, or a couple consequences, really, to the fact that Jesus has paid the price for your redemption and mine, if you're a Christian. There are a couple consequences that are alluded to in verse 27. First is this. Those of us who are spiritually united to Christ by faith, as a result of having put our trust in him alone to save us, we are no longer in debt to God's justice. We no longer um, owe God's justice. We no longer owe anything to God because we have been set free from that infinite debt by Jesus' payment of our debt when he died on the cross for us. So that's one consequence of the fact that Jesus paid the price for our redemption. We no longer owe anything to God's justice, which means we won't go to hell if we're Christian, which is where God's justice is forever to those who are not in Christ. There's a second implication, and I'll close with this. And that is the fact that we are spiritually debt-free means that we no longer need to demand that we get our own way all the time as Christians. It means that we are free, if you will, to forego things to which we may be entitled as Christians, but don't have to claim. You see, Jesus was free not to pay the temple tax. He didn't owe anything for his life. He didn't need to ransom his life, which the temple tax uh, typified, because he was sinless. He was the king's son. He was the divine son, and he was sinless. He didn't owe that temple tax, but he wasn't forbidden from paying it either. Neither was Peter, even though In Christ, Peter didn't owe that temple tax either. Or that redemption price to which the temple tax pointed. But neither of them were forbidden from paying that temple tax. And Jesus chose to pay it so that the collectors of the temple tax and others who might, uh, uh, and, and other folks as well who might hear of it, so that they, those folks might not use a refusal Uh, on Jesus' part to pay the temple tax as a reason to dismiss him as, or his claim rather, to be God's Messiah and to dismiss him as their only hope of being forgiven by God and being, and going to heaven. You see, Jesus paid the tax so as to not cause offense unnecessarily to people who might, um, hear what Jesus had done, or not done. And so as to not cause offense, Jesus pays something that he doesn't actually owe um, on this occasion. And in a similar way, 
those of us who are believers are free to decide at certain times to forego certain liberties which we as Christians have out of consideration for the spiritual potential, spiritual well-being of others. Indeed, not only are we free to do this, we are also required, I think, to do this on those occasions when somebody else's spiritual well-being is perhaps at stake. So is there some Christian liberty that you insist upon exercising when it might be to the detriment of others around you? That might be the use of alcohol on certain occasions in front of certain people. It might be the use of tobacco products. It might be something else. Are you carelessly using your Christian liberties? We have them. They are liberties. There's nothing wrong with the moderate use of uh, uh, anything that God has made. Things are not evil. Food is not evil. Created matter is not evil. We are free to partake of those things in moderation. But when we partake of those things, insist upon partaking of things, um, even if it may well cause offense to somebody, that's sinful. It's selfish and it's sinful. It dishonors God. So while I'm a proponent of exercising Christian liberty, we must be careful and we must be considerate of others in the way that we do that and not cause an unnecessary source of offense to somebody who might otherwise consider the claims of Christ uh, and come to Jesus. Let's pray. Pray with me. Lord, we uh, thank you for this text, for this reminder uh, that you have given to us uh, through Jesus' interaction with Peter of the uh, price that you paid for us, for our souls, uh, as a ransom for our life, not yours, but for ours. Why you would do this uh, for rebels like ourselves is beyond us, but we are most grateful that you willingly paid that price in full and thereby paid off our infinite debt to your infinite justice. Lord, please help us. Please cause this glorious doctrine of the atonement, of the substitutionary atonement, to have deeper, um, a deeper effect upon the way we live each day. Cause it to move us regularly in the direction of greater love and trust and faithfulness to you, our Savior and our God. We pray that if there's anyone here today that uh, 
has not yet fled to you, Lord Jesus, in faith and faith alone. Would you please grant that gift of faith that cannot be manufactured in the heart of a sinful individual, but must be given by you. Would you please give it to any here today that don't have Jesus? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.